Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. In today's episode of the Surgical Readings Podcast, we dig into the archives for a discussion of an article on endocrine surgery that was published in 2021. Our guest host for this episode is Dr. Lewis Flint, editor of the Surgical Readings in General Surgery. Please enjoy listening and learning. Greetings and welcome to the SRGS Live podcast brought to you by the Division of Education at the American College of Surgeons. I'm Lou Flint, editor of Selected Readings in General Surgery, and today our focus is endocrine surgery, a subject covered in a recent issue. Joining us are the two associate editors for that issue, Dr. Rachel Kels and Dr. Lauren Crummick from the Department of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Welcome, Dr. Kells and Dr. Crummick. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's nice to be here. I wish we could be all together, but, but we'll settle for this. Right. Well, we'll hope for the best for the future. Let's begin with a question for Dr. Kells. What history or physical examination findings should prompt further outpatient workup before thyroid surgery? I'm going to direct that question to Dr. Kells. Great. So this is an important question, you know, regardless of your field of surgery, you're always trying to figure out what do I have to learn about my patient during the consultation to afford them a safe surgical experience. And actually in the COVID pandemic, it's been really fun because we've actually allowed ourselves to do new patient visits, even for surgical diseases through telemedicine, where we don't have the luxury of a hands-on physical examination. So for patients who have uh, thyroid disease, we're really uh, concerned about issues related primarily to a mass effect of the thyroid condition. Are there issues with dysphonia, with dysphagia, or compression of the trachea? And interestingly enough, we can often observe that when a patient has such significant uh, thyroid mass through just a, a visual inspection of the neck. We're also listening very carefully to the quality of the patient's voice and importantly, the patient's impression of their voice and whether or not they've had any significant changes over time. And of course, they'll tell us about dysphagia and we're differentiating uh, dysphagia with solids and liquids to better understand whether it's a problem related to mass effect of the thyroid. We also are thinking about issues related to uncompensated medical comorbidities. And if we see any uh, shortness of breath that we can observe or the patient talks about palpitations, tachycardia, then we're thinking about uh, that patient might need a little more workup before we take them to the operating room. Mm -hmm. And in, in diseases of the thyroid, we're really interested also in signs and symptoms of um, hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism that might be a tip-off that we need to uh, do a little more looking before we 
wind up going to the operating room. Mm -hmm. And we generally send TSH for all of our patients undergoing thyroid surgery. And then for those who do have the symptoms of hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, like skin changes, weight changes, hair changes, or exothalmus, we'll even send further studies, including antibody studies um, as indicated. And then this may inform some of our counseling with our patients regarding the extent of the operation that we want to perform um, and also the likelihood that they will need postoperative thyroid hormone replacement therapy. That's very helpful. And I think given the increased use of telehealth, being able to make those observations is really going to be helpful for surgeons and facilitate their planning for a safer operation. Absolutely. It also emphasizes the role of ultrasound exam, because if we have a really good, well-done ultrasound study to complement the telehealth exchange, then it provides a little bit of assurance to us in terms of what to expect and whether or not we have to consider doing any cross-sectional imaging. Good. Well, our second question, I'm going direct to Dr. Crummick. Are there any novel treatments that are developing for the management of thyroid cancer? This question is near and dear to my heart because of my own research interests. And we're now seeing immunotherapy starting to come into the world of thyroid surgery. And for thyroid cancer, it's particularly intriguing because thyroid cancer tends to have a fairly robust immune infiltrate with T cells. And when we're talking about immunotherapy, we're thinking about how we can interact with the immune system to reinvigorate it against these tumors. And so in particular, um, we may target some of those surface receptors on T cells like PD-1 or CTLA-4 although there are many others. And there are several ongoing clinical trials now looking at their use of immunotherapy, particularly for those thyroid cancers that are more aggressive. So things like advanced differentiated thyroid cancer, medullary thyroid cancer, anaplastic. And there's one in particular, the Keynote 028 trial, which is being looked at in several solid tumors, but specifically for advanced differentiated thyroid cancer in 22 patients who had specifically an elevated PD-1 ligand. They were found to have at least two patients who had um, a partial response, and one of them lasted up to 20 months. So I think the next steps are really going to be why some patients respond to this and others don't, and really building on this progress and thinking about combination therapies and exploring some of the other surface receptors that we can use to try to reinvigorate the immune system in this way. The other thing that's interesting and important to keep in mind when you're talking about innovative treatments for thyroid cancer is the role of the endocrinologist versus the medical oncologist. Frequently, endocrinologists are the oncologists for the thyroid cancer patient, but when you get into patients who really are, you know, have these de-differentiated tumors, anaplastic tumors, medullary thyroid cancer, a totally different cell type, you want to engage a medical oncologist who's a specialist in advanced thyroid cancer because they'll have access to ongoing clinical trials. They may even be the PI. And there are some multi-kinase inhibitors that are approved for treatment at this time and actually showing some incredibly promising results. Well, that's really encouraging, especially for the more unusual types of thyroid tumors, the medullary and the uh, anaplastic and that sort of thing. It is uh, really amazing to me how much improvement there is in the outlook for patients with these kinds of diseases, given the advances in therapy that we're seeing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting with anaplastic thyroid cancer where our advances are lagging a little relative to the others. It's a tumor that's very dependent on glucose metabolism. So there's some promising work going on 
in mice doing a, a ketogenic diet where they're starting to see some effects of a ketogenic diet plus N-acetylcysteine to uh, lower the glycolysis function and, and see shrinking of those tumors. So I think there's even more on the horizon to be hopeful about. Yeah, that's very exciting. Our next question I'm going to direct to Dr. Kels. What is the practice standard for genetic testing for thyroid cancer? Well, this is another area that's been really exciting. So over the past uh, 10 years or so, there's really been an advance in our ability to use molecular testing to help avoid unnecessary surgery, I guess would be the best way to phrase it. There are molecular tests that can now look for point mutations or translocations and chromosomal rearrangements using DNA and gene expression classifiers using RNA. The two most common ones that you hear people talk about are the Affirma study and also uh, the ThyroSeq, and now they're up to ThyroSeq version 3. I prefer the ThyroSeq uh, version 3 because it can be used as both a rule-in and a rule-out test, and it's actually uh, been shown to potentially avoid surgery in up to 60% of patients with indeterminate nodules. One of the issues is, you know, who should I be getting molecular tests performed on? Should I do it with every FNA or is there a select cohort of people that I should consider? And really we're talking about people who have Bethesda class three and four cytology, where you should consider getting molecular studies in them to help further risk stratify and also determine the extent of surgery. We've also run into some unique scenarios as genetic testing is becoming more widely used. Um, it's our general practice to reevaluate the pathology results with our own team here. And we've run into scenarios in which the pathologist upstaged someone from a benign lesion to an indeterminate one. And then in that case, genetic testing was never sent. So it's exciting now that we can send ThyroSeq from just the standard cytology smears. And so patients don't have to come back in and get another sample sent. And then on the other hand, we've had scenarios in which um, someone is reevaluated and found to have either benign or malignant disease, and then the genetic testing was already sent and comes back at the opposite of what we were expecting based on the pathology. And so I think in that case, you know, it's basically outside of the criteria for these genetic testings right now. So we just have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis and um, just try to use it to inform our approach. Well, that's very informative questions. I appreciate that. Our next question I'm going to direct to Dr. Crummick. Patients who have undergone bariatric surgery are becoming a uh, increasing proportion of the population that are presenting to surgeons for thyroid or parathyroid surgery. What does the surgeon need to know about the postoperative management of a patient who's had gastric bypass after thyroid or parathyroid surgery? Yeah, so this is another really important question. As you mentioned, it's becoming a much more prevalent in our population. And there was an observational study in 2013 looking at 19 patients who had undergone Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and compared to 38 MASH controls. And they found that after thyroidectomy, the patients who had undergone Roux-en-Y gastric bypass were significantly more likely to have symptomatic hypocalcemia and also to require IV calcium postoperatively. And that matches what we see in our clinical practice. And so there, there are a few mechanisms at play here. I think the predominant one is that the duodenum, which is the predominant area where calcium is absorbed, is bypassed in patients with Bruin-White gastric bypass. The other factor at play is that patients who have undergone Bruin-White gastric bypass tend to have less acidity, and that impacts the calcium absorption. I think the mechanism there is that the the G cells in the antrum are not receiving the food directly, and so they tend to secrete less gastrin, which in 
um, therefore leads to a lower acid secretion. And so when the duodenum is bypassed in these patients, um, they tend to absorb calcium through a different mechanism rather than transcellular, it'll be paracellular. Um, and calcium citrate tends to work better in these patients than calcium, calcium carbonate. So although our calcium carbonate regimen is our standard for our other patients, when we have patients who've had intestinal bypass, um, particularly of the duodenum, we'll use calcium citrate instead. And the lack of acid also inhibits the dissociation of the calcium carbonate into a biologically available um, uh, calcium, elemental calcium. And so um, that's also contributing to the problem. So if you um, can also, there's a liquid formulation of calcium carbonate, which uh, allows a greater surface area contact and can sometimes be helpful. And the endocrinologist will recommend taking the calcium supplement with an, um, an acidic beverage, like a cranberry juice or something like that because then it also helps to do the job of the missing acid from the stomach. Just a uh, quick related question. As a former bariatric surgeon, I was impressed that many of my patients didn't pay much attention to taking oral medications. In your practice, how frequently do you monitor vitamin levels or supplement levels in patients that you're trying to uh, treat for these complications? So the key elements here are vitamin D levels because you need to have an appropriate vitamin D availability in order to absorb the calcium in the first place. And then we're checking calcium and ionized calciums. But the good news is that the majority of patients do not have clinically significant um, hypoparathyroidism following thyroid surgery. Um, in the bariatric population where we know their calciums can run low a little bit prior to surgery as well, we always check a calcium level preoperatively. And if it's low, then we check a vitamin D level as well to see if we can augment that prior to undergoing surgery to make the postoperative um, recovery a little bit better. And then following the surgery, um, the endocrinologist will usually check calcium levels um, while they're fluctuating, if people are symptomatic, or uh, once they're on a stable dose, then you can have your calcium levels checked at a much longer intervals. Thank you. I'm going to direct the next question to Dr. Kells. When is bilateral exploration indicated for hyperparathyroidism? So that is a little bit of a controversial question. Thankfully, the guidelines still suggest that the number one indication for bilateral surgery should be the surgeon's discretion. So if you're very comfortable at doing a foregland exploration that has been an operation that has uh, demonstrated you know, long-term durable results in more than 95% of patients and can be done through a very small incision. Um, so unlike the olden days where I think uh, people used to do what I call the PEZ dispenser incision, you know, it's now done through a very small incision um, and can be done uh, very quickly by uh, most uh, high volume endocrine surgeons. However, for people who don't do parathyroidectomies as often, there are some guidelines as to when a bilateral exploration should be performed. So in patients who have discordant preoperative imaging, um, when there's a high suspicion of multi-gland disease, either because of a familial syndrome or because of um, radiation exposure potentially, um, then you should uh, always consider doing a foregland exploration. And also if you don't have intraoperative parathyroid hormone monitoring available to you, then foregland exploration should be the standard of care. In some patients' practices, what they'll do is sort of, you know, hedge in the middle. If they have intraop hormone monitoring available and they have a targeted parathyroid gland, they'll take out that one gland 
and then ex you know, explore on the ipsilateral side for the other gland. And if that one's suppressed or normal, then they might just hang out there and wait for their PTH to come back. In my opinion, because you're waiting for the PTH to come back, it's worthwhile just to look at the other two glands because it, it allows the patient in the long run to have a shorter anesthetic. Thank you. Just uh, one final question that I'm going to uh, direct to Dr. Crummick. What is your preferred regimen for preoperative management of a patient with pheochromocytoma? Hmm. Yes, it's very timely because we just did one this morning. So all of all patients with pheochromocytoma need to have preoperative blockade. At our institution, we typically will stop all diuretics and then we will use phenoxybenzamine for an alpha blockade for 10 to 14 days prior to surgery. And we will actually uptitrate this until the patient has some mild orthostatic hypotension. If patients are still tachycardic, we will add metoprolol onto this regimen. It's very important to reiterate that beta blockade must be after the alpha blockade so that there's no unopposed alpha stimulation. Um, and all of this is done so that when patients are in the operating room and we're manipulating the pheochromocytoma, there's no significant hypertension that the patient will experience intraoperatively. If the hypertension is still difficult to control preoperatively, we can add a calcium channel blocker and very rarely we will admit patients preoperatively for IV control and salt loading. And then around the time of the surgery, we will use a fairly aggressive IV hydration to try to temper the effects of the catecholamine withdrawal around the time of the surgery. Yeah, well, that's been very helpful. In closing, I'd like to thank Dr. Kels and Dr. Crummick for an informative and interesting discussion and thank our audience for your interest and attendance. Please direct any questions you may have to me. My email address is lflint at facs.org. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning. Music